0: Welcome to this Ocean Life Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peterson. Today's episode is brought to us by our good friends at Shearwater Paddleboards, a family owned company, handcrafting prone paddleboards and surfboards. If you want to be fast, smooth, and comfortable in the water, check them out. ShearwaterPaddleboards.com. Now today in episode 63, we speak with Stefan Simkovic, a man who found his passion for the ocean after spending time traveling the world with the US Navy. Stefan takes us through his enlistment process, choosing a ship to serve on, and the officer role he served on a 400-foot frigate ship. We hear of Stefan becoming a Navy rescue swimmer, his daily life on board, and operating along the east coast of Africa and supporting operations to combat piracy. Stefan shares his perspective on finding his passion for surfing and prone paddling when he left the Navy and joined as a lifeguard in San Diego. So some great perspective from being in the Navy, traveling the world, and visiting a bunch of countries uh, in Eastern Africa. So, thanks for being here. I hope you're all getting out, enjoying the water, cutting back on our plastics usage, picking up some trash, and doing something good for the ocean. Now, with that, let's get into the ocean life of Stefan Simkovics. Stefan, welcome to this Ocean Life podcast, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate you reaching out. And um, like, as I was mentioning, we were catching up a minute ago. You know, I'm always, there's this really interesting story that I'm I'm dying to hear from you because myself and the majority of people that we've had on the show, they've been, um, you know, their ocean life kind of originated like on their own terms, so to speak. And you come from a, and that's true for you also, but you also spent a lot of time in the Navy, you know, doing stuff on the ocean that might not have always been like, uh, you know, um, you know, um, on your own sort of regard or, or your own, um, interest. So, so I'm interested to hear your perspective on that today, man.
1: Um, yeah. So, you know, I, uh, graduated from college in 2009 and I reported down to Virginia beach, Virginia, and I had a ship out of Norfolk. Um, it was kind of weird. I was thinking about it today. You know, when I, when I graduated from college, you know, it wasn't too different than like the college mindset in terms of like social life and partying. And, uh, in my opinion, the mid Atlantic States, um, I, I feel there isn't really a lot to do in terms of, uh, activity, or maybe I just wasn't interested in the time. There is a surfing community in Virginia beach. There is history there in terms of surfing and, uh, being a waterman lifestyle. But, uh, I never really, never really crossed my mind. Uh, you know, I graduated, I was a young naval officer and I just was going to my ship every day and the surface warfare community has its pros and its cons, but the, the water life is uh, limited. And actually, you know, when you go underway, it's not like the most exciting thing ever. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Being on the ocean wasn't wasn't my favorite. Right. So why
0: to do. did you? What was if you rewind a little bit? So you finished college and you decided to join the Navy. What was there like a driving force to that? Was it interest in the water? Was it just uh, that a logical next step for you? Like what was it about the Navy that you know prompted you to to join?
1: Well, you know, I went to a service academy. I went to uh, the Naval mm-hmm. Academy, and as I was looking at colleges, um, you know, matriculating to a small liberal arts college is what a lot of people in my high school did. Uh, in the northeast, but uh, I kind of wanted something a little bit bigger. Um, I always knew, like growing up, I wanted to do some sel- some sort of service, but I never really like put my thumb on it. I wasn't like a gung ho, like you know, soldier sailor type of mentality when I was young. But the summer before my senior year in high school, my friend Paul was getting recruited by Annapolis for lacrosse, and I tagged along for his. Little official visit, and um, I looked around and I saw what they had to offer, and I, it looked very intriguing. Um, I kind of wanted something a little bigger, and you know that I wouldn't mind serving serving the country after uh, graduating, and also taking a lot of college yeah. debt off my mom. So uh, that was kind of uh, there. It wasn't like any like grand, you know, yeah. lightbulb moment where like something hit me, and I was like, "Oh, I'm going." I was just like, you know, this sounds
0: cool. This is different. Um, I have it in me to be in the military, so let's just do it. Right. Got it. Got it. So then when you go to sign up, you already had a background in it from, from school and everything, but did you get a chance to like pick or sort of choose the area of the Navy that you could go into? You said the surface warfare part or division, was that just handed to you? Like, how does that go down? Can you kind of have some kind of say in what aspect of the Navy you get to jump into?
1: Yes, absolutely. So you know, I would say the biggest portion of which gets you to the respective service community that you want to go to is your grades and uh, order of merit. Um, I graduated in the comma club for my class, which means uh, there's a comma in my uh, order of merit and okay. the ranking that I graduated in. Um, and, and and my graduating class only had about. 1200 people in it. So I was very low. Um, so basically, you know, if you put your first or second choice as like aviator or Marine Corps possibly, you know, and you're just, you don't meet that kind of, I don't want to say standard. It's not saying that you're not good enough. It's just saying probably you're not good enough right now yeah. to do that. Um, so I was selected to go to the surface warfare community and, um, I, and I was picked, uh, I picked my ship very, very last. So they, they take. Everyone that got surface warfare and they put them in a room and they have all the ships that you can serve on from San Diego to Japan to Jacksonville, Florida to Norfolk. And of course, you know, that, that, that selection is based on your order of merit. So all the San Diego ships went, Yeah, I think the few Jacksonville ships went, Jacksonville ships went, I wasn't going to Japan. And then I I distinctly remember there was like six ships left on the board. So I picked uh, the USS Nicholas out of Norfolk. And then luckily, my uh, one of my best friends, Pat, he uh, picked the same ship. He was a couple uh, r- couple Order of Merit points below me. And uh, so it was good to be on the same Got ship it. as him. So that was one of my little yeah. story. You know, if you have good grades and you, good Order of Merit and you put pilot as your first choice, you get selected it. as pilot. Got it. Um, the one thing about surface warfare is that if you want to laterally transfer to another community, um, you will have that opportunity once you receive all your qualifications in the surface community and then you just put in a transfer package to whatever you want to go to.
0: Gotcha. So it's almost like a drafting a team, so to speak, but you're not really drafting the team. You're drafting yourself into a onto a team, really, you know, and you pick the ship that's left. Now when you selected that ship out of Norfolk, did you know like the roughly where that ship was going to be sent and what it was going to be doing? Did you have that information or did you just know the home port and that was interesting Norfolk and so you chose that? How much information did you have to make that decision?
1: Um, so basically, like I wanted to deploy right away and kind of get my qualifications over with, get my uh, surface warfare pin, which goes on your uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had no clue. I just picked the Nicholas and I was very lucky that I graduated in May of 2009 and we deployed in November of 2009. So it was a really ideal situation where, uh, you know, I, I got used to the ship, you know, for a little bit during the summer and then the fall and then we deployed and I got that information once I picked the ship. Another junior officer called me from the ship and kind of told me the legits of when we were going and what we were doing and the certain jobs that I might hold on the ship. Um, I was a a search and rescue swimmer on the ship, which was kind of cool. cool. I was able to go to a SAR school in Jacksonville. Uh, Nothing really sexy about that. I wasn't jumping off helicopters or anything, Um, (laughs) but uh, it was kind of cool to get in the water and uh, kind of my first waterman experience with that job was off the coast of Africa but yeah, you know some people will pick a ship and then you know it's the luck of the draw and sometimes they pick a ship and that ship's just returning from deployment right so you know now they're on the ship for maybe 12 months, 18 months before they deploy again and uh, it's kind of hard to get all your surface warfare qualifications because yeah. you really need you really need the
0: underway time. Got it, got it. so this the Nicholas describe that ship like how big what what what's like the function of it primarily?
1: Uh, it was 453 uh, feet. It was actually kind of, I think, called like the Corvette of the Navy. Really, uh, a very, very small ship. Um, so we can we can pull into areas like where you know a lot of other ships couldn't. Yeah. Uh, we could pull actually into port where bigger ships can't pull in the port, and they have to have something called a Liberty launch, where a boat takes the sailors to and from the ship um the main ship's mission was uh, submarine warfare or like anti-submarine warfare i think this was the deal i was told this and it may be like semi-correct the the frigates were designed to be a part of the cold war Uh and hunt submarines but by the time they got actually commissioned and out to sea the cold war was um over (laughs) so it had like yeah it had like Capabilities of looking for submarines, but then I think its primary mission was just uh, independent deployer and presence right. in you know in the, in the oceans, right? You know, just to pulling in the ports, human uh, uh, you know relations with foreign countries.
0: Yep, got it. So the the search and rescue swimmer, the SAR swimmer, we've had another guy on um, George Shepler, who's got another podcast was um, called Coastal Athlete Program. Uh, great guy. He was also a search and rescue swimmer in the Navy, and so talk about that experience for you. I mean. What prompted you to, 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 to pursue that? I mean, would, did you already have an interest in the water? It might have been fresh water. might have been a pool or swimming. Um, because I know there's a, a fairly heavy amount of training and, you know, learning that goes into being, a, a, you know, a rescue swimmer. So why did you get into it? And then how did you find that training um, and the whole just being, you know, serving in that capacity on the ship? Um,
1: so basically, like I said earlier, the uh, the junior officer that called me, was a search and rescue swimmer himself, but he was about to leave the ship. Um, And for a ship to get underway, I don't know if it's still the same rule, you have to have two search and rescue swimmers on the ship um, in order to get underway. So a billet was going to be open. A search and rescue swimmer is usually a primary job for the enlisted, um, enlisted enlisted-only members of the crew, but there was a situation on the ship where you know, all the enlisted, I, I, respectively on my ship, the enlistment enlisted that they were sending to school were failing out. I think due to swimming capabilities or they weren't able to, right. uh, they weren't able to pass the initial swim test. So I learned how to swim at Annapolis mm-hmm. pretty well. And, um, since I knew how to swim and I, I knew I was confident I would pass the course. So then, you know, the Navy's like, well, we can just send an officer to, you know, the, sh- to the search and rescue swimmer school. And, uh, that was a month in Jacksonville. So basically, I knew how to swim. It was a month off the ship uh, for a school that was going to be completely paid for, and I just just went. Yeah. You know, no no like grand thing or grand light hitting me like light right. bulb. It was there, it was available. I could do it, <laughs> so I just do it.
0: Yeah, got it. Very cool. Um, so then you finish the the rescue swimmer course, you get back on the ship, and then you guys deploy. You mentioned in November, and so what 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 year was this? What are we talking here? So, um, reported to my ship in June, t- June,
1: 2009, yep. went to search and rescue school for the whole month of September, 2009. So that was kind of cool. Got away from the ship for a little bit. And then a month later, uh, October was kind of just the pre-deployment leave. Um, and then actually, no, sorry. We, and then we deployed December 3rd of 2009 because mm-hmm. I remember what I, had, uh, I had Thanksgiving at
0: home. Yeah, cool. And now you're. Like official role or title on the on the the ship was first lieutenant. Is that correct? Yep, first lieutenant
1: is in charge of a division called deck division. Um, it's kind of an interesting division. Um, if you don't have a designated rate in the navy, um, you get sent to deck uh, division. And what I mean, rate is a uh, say you're uh, a QM. That means you're a quartermaster, so you're in charge of like all the navigation yep. of the ships. Um, paperwork and like all the charts and everything like that, if I remember correctly. But if you don't have a rate, which happens in the Navy, you get sent to deck division. It's kind of a kind of, I saw like a lot of my guys were inner yep. city guys, uh, you know, inner city places. Uh, so it's a kind of a rough and tumble little,
0: Yeah, it could be a little rough it.
1: and tumble division, but they're very hard workers. We were in charge of ship, ship's preservation. So a lot of my guys would bust down like old rust spots, prime them yep. up and paint them again. Uh, we were in charge of anchor detail, so every underway for two and a half hours, we would sit at the front of the ship, also called the forecastle. And uh, if there was an emergency, we would drop the anchor. And then also, my guys were in charge of actually um, steering steering the ship. So one of my guys would be like in the hot seat to uh, you know push the little knob to steer the ship, and they would also be up there uh, to help out
0: in other capacities. Yeah, man. So you had a lot of responsibility. I mean, it was on deck operations and it was also just the steering of the ship and everything. So how did you enjoy that? I mean, was that something you sought out, that kind of leadership role in the Navy? Was that something that you were always kind of after?
1: Um, not really. You know, you just show up to your ship and then the the commanding officer and the department heads kind of just pick yeah. where the JOs go. So yeah. I kind of just landed in deck division. Right. Um, you know, my, my buddy Pat was uh, the SICWO officer, I believe, yeah. or he was in charge of another little division. You know, and I just showed up green. I wouldn't say I was the best naval officer in a way, but, you know, I feel like I had a good relationship with my guys um, and my chief. And I think the not being the greatest naval officer type of thing was kind of just a mindset and a maturity thing. Um, but, you know, I, I got the job done. You know, there wasn't, you know, really uh, any uh, repercussions. I did show up uh, drunk one day, yep. I think. No, I didn't show up one day because I was right. drunk and I was actually put on something called hack, which is hereby assigned the quarters. Um, <laughs> and that's why I had to sleep on the ship for about three or four <laughs> weeks. I, I remember, so.
0: yeah, that's, that's uh, bound to happen. Yeah, I'm sure as a young guy, yeah, your twenties so. <laughs> yeah. I
1: made some mistakes that were, uh, that were stupid. You know, my, my buddies didn't make the same mistakes, but I, I learned from them and I had a good relationship with my yep. chief who's been in deck division, you know, since he was uh, for about 18 years. Yeah. So it's kind of, I listened to him. So like I said, you know, Just, I stumbled along a little bit, but I learned along the way. Most importantly, I'm glad I had a good rapport with my sailors, you know, well, maybe a little bit too much. Sometimes as an officer, you gotta, you gotta draw the line a little bit.
0: Right, right, right. Gotcha. So it's December now and you basically, you guys leave and you're heading to what? The East coast of Africa? Is that your, your, like, that's your straight shot. You're heading over there.
1: Yep. We go across the pond, uh, go across the pond and, uh, call that the Atlantic and uh, then we head into the Mediterranean Sea yeah going to the med and then we stopped in Italy for Christmas so I got to see a little bit of Rome uh, that was kind of cool um, and then we went down the Suez Canal which is this very very narrow canal that cost a lot of money yep. to go down uh, the ship is pretty much all the ship is up all the watches are manned for about 18 hours um, and then we uh, we head down I think into the Red Sea, around the Horn of Africa and the Mogadishu. And then we pretty much hit every little country on the way down all the way to Cape Town and then worked our way back up. Um, and then once we hit Cape Town, that was kind of the halfway point of deployment. And then we just kind of worked our way back up through the same route we came, through the Suez and then uh, back through the Mediterranean and then over back to the Atlantic, back to Norfolk. So returning yeah. in June 2010.
0: Right. Wow, that's cool, man. So, how was that first like couple of weeks? You know, you mentioned it's probably whatever three weeks ish to cross the Atlantic. That first experience of just being in the open ocean, and it feels—it sounds like we, in your capacity, you were on deck. You were—you know—you saw the ocean instead of maybe being a mechanic in the bowels of a ship where you don't—you know—you're not seeing the ocean for a good chunk of the day. I mean, what was it like for you? I mean, was that of interest? Was there any kind of wow? I've never been at sea for th- multiple weeks. Like, what was your kind of reaction to that?
1: Um, I remember when we crossed distinctly, um every officer has to learn how to drive the ship in a sense and navigate it. So officers, you know, depending if they're in engineering department, they will be in the bows of the ship, but mm-hmm. every officer will have watch on the bridge where they're learn where they're the they will enforce the ship's commanding officers' protocols and everything like
0: that. So yeah.
1: um, I remember one watch. You know, there was nothing around. It was actually pretty tranquil. And then uh, off to like the left side of the ship, the port side, we saw a cruise ship. And uh, it was it was lit up with lights and everything like that. And, um, you know, it passed by us. And I was wondering, well, I wonder what it would be like to be on that ship. being <laughs> A little <on> different. <laughs> Very different. But uh, I do remember at night, you know, standing the, the, the mid-watch, which is from 10, 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., or standing the revelry watch the rev watch which is from 2 a.m to 7 a.m uh being up there it has its peaceful moments right, right. so that, that was kind of my first experience nothing didn't look too deep in, into it there was no spiritual side to it like surfing right. there was no like kind of uh you know when you get out of surfing you know you kind of all your problems have gone mm-hmm. away or in, you know you're a little bit more relaxed but yeah. uh, you know being on the ship you're working and you know i there was no, I didn't get off the ship and be like, wow, yeah. you know, I, I feel
0: so fresh right, and clean. Right, you know, you, business. You, yeah,
1: the yeah. water's gross to take a shower with and, you know, you have big gnarly pimples on your face. So.
0: <laughs> a little, little motor oil mixed up with the, the, the water, the shower water and everything. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, and then sometimes the shower water, like the water machine, whatever it was called, would break. So I remember me and Pat, we would uh, take baby wipe showers.
0: Oh, geez. (laughs) So then how about the east coast of Africa? So you guys, you come around just through the Suez Canal, you hit Mogadishu and all that stuff. Now, and and maybe you can't speak to all of this, but I'm guessing back in that time was kind of like the pirate days, right? When you heard about a lot of pirates happening and stuff. So was that, I mean, was that part of like the presence you guys were um, placing, putting down on that, that area, was just to kind of protect, I guess, a little bit against the pirate stuff going on over there?
1: Absolutely. And actually a funny story to that, you know, the first part of deployment was an African partnership mission, which is like, we kind of just worked with uh, different countries and their African Navy, African military in a way. But the second part of the deployment was anti-piracy where we did catch four pirates um, that, that fired upon the ship. I, I was in, I was sleeping at the time I was inside the skin of the ship and, you know, these pirates fired at us and, uh, they didn't know we were a naval vessel in a way, but once they found out we were, they, uh, kind of threw all their weapons (sighs) overboard. And then the, uh, (laughs) from from what I remember. And, uh, then we took them on board as like prisoners. Um, but you know, they're always treated humanely. They, uh, you know they got three meals a day. They got walking around time. Um, the only problem is, is that we were stuck at ski, sea for about forty-two days, and frigates really aren't meant to be out to sea for that long. Um, uh, so you know, oh. food got low, uh, morale got kind of low because the thing is, is we had these pirates on board, but you know, and we w- they were going to get charged. But I think from what I heard, like back in the states. They didn't know what to do, like they didn't right. know what to charge someone. Like, no one's been charged with piracy yeah. in like 200 years. So, eventually, I think that they, they got flown off, they got sent back to Norfolk, they got uh, they wow. they got tried in court, and then Shit. they were sent to jail in, in, in America. I vaguely remember that. Wow, you know, that's that's, that's
0: crazy, happened. man. They're like you know, some local dudes, and you know, there's I know there's politics behind it and just rationale for. You know, why these guys chose the life of pirating. I've read a couple books on it, but you know, here they are chasing down, they see the ship, they start shooting probably machine guns at it, hoping they can maybe board and they realize it's a US military US Navy ship, and they go, Oh shit, drop their weapons overboard, and then months later end up in the States and then in jail over there. That's a crazy like story for those guys.
1: Yeah. I've seen these pirate yeah. skips. It's not good life. Right. I mean, that's a Captain it's rag Phillips. Tag you know, all over again, you got the sun beating down on you. Like there's not much coverage. And then, but like, I mean, I don't know if they're complaining, living in an air conditioned prison with a bed. Right. Right.
0: That's crazy, man. Yeah. Yeah. So how about like, talk about just the various countries you, you said you, you popped in, you, you basically went up and down the East coast of Africa, you know, Somalia, Mogadishu, there's some, you know, maybe very third world spots. And there's some other spots that aren't so with beautiful coast and, you know, maybe a different, um, level of society and culture. So what are some of your perspectives? I mean, you, you probably were you able to get off the boat and interact with some of the different cultures and the ports that you guys, you know, um, landed in. I mean, yeah. So basically I think I can describe like three ports. Like we,
1: since there's like rules and restrictions for like American sailors, um, being in these foreign countries, um, you know, their safety is their priority. And, and like, so every time we pulled in the port a husbanding agent would come on board and they would tell us the do's and don'ts of that respective uh. ports. So like a like a port like Kenya we were only allowed to go to two places, a casino and a hotel. Um, and I would always leave uh, the ship with Pat Regan, my buddy, you can't you can't leave the ship by right. yourself and go venture off by yourself. And we weren't really casino guys, so You know, we went to the hotel, um, which was kind of a low key hotel. We drank a lot of Tusker beer, which is a great African beer. Um, And then, like, kind of the culture was like entertainment in the hotel is just like some people dancing, like some African people dancing, like on a dance floor, like kind of doing, like, I wouldn't say go as far as the extent of doing a tribal dance, but like, you know, there is some history in there. Um, And then, you know, as we were driving from our port to, to the hotel, you'd see, you see the local yeah, population, you know, you see them selling cot, which is that yep, uh, cocaine yep. drug. that has a similar effects as cocaine. Um, you know, you get the middle finger every now and then you kids <laughs> throwing rocks. I like each other, um, and everything like that, but, uh, nothing too crazy. We also pulled into Djibouti. Djibouti also has an American base there. So that's also another thing I remember just kind of seeing the villages, um, that we walked through in Djibouti. Um, but then, you know, my favorite port was Cape town, but that's like, that was kind of like pulling into San Diego. The husbanding agent got on board and he's right. like, he's <laughs> like, uh, they can go anywhere. Like they can go anywhere here. So it was fine.
0: Yeah. And now, on the ship as well. Now you're, you said your your bunk mate, your shipmate, he had a bunch of surfing magazines. And so talk about that in a little bit. Now as, as you're on the ship, you start thumbing through these things. So just talk about sort of how you then start developing this interest in surfing and, and everything there.
1: Yeah, you. So Pat is from uh, Rockville Center, Long Island, and you know he vacationed out east uh, in Sagaponic with his family. They had a house out there, so he kind of had a little surfing background and a funny story about pat i think when we were in virginia beach he brought me to a surf shop and he bought like a full hoodie wetsuit yeah and he's like what do you think about this and i'm like in my mind internally i was like well i was like this is stupid i don't know why you're gonna buy it but uh <laughs> i was like hey dude if you're gonna use it buy it if you're gonna if you need it need it um so he also had a little uh surfing magazines and like i said i think i, I told you earlier in some emails that. Uh, You know, one of the articles had an article on Cape Town, but the primary focus was kind of just learning about Cape Town. Uh, My love for the ocean and my love for surfing and paddling really only emerged when I became a lifeguard for the city of San Diego because I was immersed in that kind of culture. Um, I would say maybe the spark was there. I always wanted to kind of learn how to surf, but I was kind of just more, I had the priorities of like maybe just working out in the gym. Um, partying, like I said, the mid Atlantic States is, there's really not much to do. Um, and, and going from there. Um, so, you know, I used to go to the surf shops with Pat and he would buy some stuff. I would say I even bought a a couple surf t-shirts, uh, maybe some rusty or some billabong stuff, but never the, the spark wasn't there. It was maybe it was there internally, but I didn't recognize it at the time.
0: Got it. Got it. Cool, and we'll get to that in, in a sec too. I'm just curious. So, on during your time on the ship, and I was again speaking with the other uh, rescue swimmer from the Navy, we've had uh, George Shepard. It sounds like there's not a, you're not splashing in the water. You're just not a ton of action, or at least typically, right? And So, for you, did you have to jump in the water? Did anybody go over? or Did you ever have to basically get out and and, and rescue somebody or help somebody out? You
1: no, know, there was no active uh, search and rescues. Only training. And, um, you know, pretend, you know, training man overboards where we would throw a, uh, yeah. kind of a buoy out or something like that. And then the ship would ma- main, the ship would mainly kind of just maneuver to get that buoy and actually come up right upon, right, at, right, at, right Got on the side of it. Um, but the, my one kind of like cool waterman story is like, we had this torpedo, it was a fake torpedo um, that we would launch off the ship. And essentially, you know, that would be used as if we had ordnance on board, a live one would be shot at, you know, in theory yeah. at a submarine, um, if, if that needed to happen. Um, but it was called a Rex Torp and the Rex Torp would get shot out into the ocean. And we did this off the coast of Africa. And then, so the search and rescue swimmers are responsible to kind of bring it back. You can't just shoot a Rex Torp and not get it back. Um, so me and the other rescue swimmer were in the uh, the small boat, which you know every ship has a little boat mm-hmm. like a twelve meter rib, and we got out on the boat and we got off the boat and we hooked we we hooked up the rest the rest the Rex torp to a a tow line, and then me and the other rescue swimmer hanged on to the Rex torp and like we got dragged on oh, the Rex cool. Rex torp back <laughs> to the ship. But I do distinctly remember like you know the search and rescue swimmer. Mask is very big. It's like a widescreen movie theater, so you can see everything. And I remember just kind of looking down oh, in this wow. deep blue, like ocean off the coast of Africa, and like you know, you think of sharks and everything like that. But you know, it was, it yeah. was kind of like a peaceful moment. So maybe like my, you know, maybe the seed was planted back then. I, I can't tell
0: you for sure, right. but it yeah. was not. Right. Little seeds yeah. that all kind of came together at some point. Yeah. That's cool, man. So how fast did that thing go? The Rex Torp, I mean, five knots, 10 knots, how fast were you going when you were getting drugged by it?
1: Um, Not, not
0: too fast.
1: Maybe like uh, nothing, yeah. nothing crazy, like hair on fire, roller coaster. Yeah. Um and You also <laughs> want to go slow. So that line doesn't really snap. Um, but it was oh, kind of yeah, cool yeah. to get dragged through the water. You feel the glide a little bit. Um, you yeah. know, it, it was kind of cool, you know, Back then, iPhones and cameras weren't that big, so you know you weren't worried about putting your life on display or showing people, "Hey, you're doing cool stuff." It kind <laughs> of just like a, a in the moment type thing. And yeah. uh, I remember we brought it back, we pulled alongside the ship, me and the other sw- rescue swimmer were, like attached to a towing system, and it got pulled up, and and then we had deck barbecue.
0: Right on, yeah. yeah. Now, also, you mentioned that you used to get seasick as well. Did that ever go away uh, over time being on the ship?
1: Yeah, so you get used to it. I remember when we first went out to sea, uh, you know, I remember distinctly seeing white caps, and, you know, a frigate's not very big, so it will bob, um, yeah. kind of like a cork. And I was just throwing up, throwing up, uh, throwing up. And then I went into my rack, and uh, seasickness is kind of like a hangover. You can't just, it kind of just goes away on its own, and you can't take dramamine when you're seasick cuz it's not going yeah. to absorb by the way. supposed take Dramamine like before you get underway so it yeah, absorbs. Yeah, too late. And yeah. And I remember I went down to my rack and my watch came up and Pat pokes me and he goes, "Hey dude, your watch is up. <laughs> and you got to go up there." And I said, "I I backed down. I was like, "Pat, yeah. I can't go up there. I'm sorry."
0: Uh, I know. And so
1: I I slept the rest of the way. So another little gut check moment where i kind of didn't step up to the plate but it uh, happens um, man
0: you live and you learn oh yeah well seasickness man i don't care how big and badass and gnarly anybody is it makes the biggest studliest male or female just <laughs> turn into like the most cowering wimp and i i'm i'm totally guilty you know i mean as a kid getting seasick and even just having my own boat like there'll be days that i'm totally fine and then for some reason One morning, like salmon fishing, I'm just hurling and like curled up in the corner of the boat, you know, while my friends are laughing at me, you know, and it's, it just, it tears you down, you know, (laughs) it's a tough one. Oh, yeah. We, we, you know, a little caveat off that me and my, all my best
1: friends from college, about 10 of us went to Cabo for our senior trip, right? When we graduated and we decided to book some sort of BS Cabo deep sea fishing trip, which we're like, we left at noon, which I traditionally on these trips, you leave it (laughs) on. And we got all this beer and stuff like that. We didn't touch that beer. (laughs) We didn't get seasick, but we were were like on the verge. Like it was the mental part of just be like, you know what? Let's just ride this out. And my one friend, Mike from Long Island, he like grew up um, kind of deep sea fishing. He was the only one working with the cat. I think he was actually telling the people on the boat that would, you know, that, that run these fishing charters, like what to do, you know, I think they are just, interested in getting our, our,
0: our money. Oh yeah, absolutely. They're just going to take you straight out, let you throw up and then take you straight back in. They're not even looking for the fish probably.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, they like throw out a line or two and they'd be like, Oh yeah, you'll catch something. And I remember Mike, like he kind of knew the, the ways of fishing cause he grew up on Long Island yeah. doing it. And he was like pointing like, to like where to go right. to, to tell the, uh, <laughs> the guy at the helm.
0: <laughs> uh, it's funny, man. Yeah. sea seasickness is gnarly. So you kind of get over it after time, you know, you get your sea legs, so to speak. And so you guys spend some time East coast of Africa. You really like Cape Town. And then you guys, like you mentioned, you steam back across the Atlantic back to Norfolk. And then so how, when did you then um, land in San Diego and were you still part of the Navy? Was that like a, you, you, you shifted ports or deployments or how that, how did you get to, to be in San Diego?
1: Yeah, so basically two years on the ship, and then I got orders to Coronado, California, um, with Naval Special Warfare, kind of the Special Warfare SEAL component of the Navy, to be a liaison officer for them, and um, I went over there, and that's how I landed in San yeah. Diego. But kind of the the party the party right. continued. Were you when you got you those know, orders,
0: whatever. were you like pretty thrilled? Was that something that you were looking forward to? Right.
1: Yep, I was really happy. Uh, a majority of my friends were over there. My but my other roommate, Brendan, got orders over there too. So we, him and I, we uh, we lived together on Coronado for a, a year, oh, a couple cool. of years. And then Pat, Pat eventually made his way over there also. So uh, I was really lucky. You know, I think we were all really lucky. My little group of friends, my little group of like 10 guys, always seemed to be stationed oh, right near on. each other. So it was fun. And then, of course, San Diego – Coronado is kind of bu- a bubble, so we didn't really leave Coronado that much. But we'd also venture out to Pacific Beach. But then again, you know, it was basically just being in the Navy, you know, working out at the gym when we when we wanted to or you know got the time to, and then just and then partying yeah. on the side. Uh, Pat Pat was the only one that really had an eight eight foot longboard that would kind of make the initiative to go surf. I, I didn't even didn't even try.
0: Right. So when did you? first then start getting in the water and playing and surfing and stuff. How'd that, how'd that go down? Was it Pat that got you in there? or How'd that go? Just the lifeguard Academy. You know,
1: I had aspirations to be a career firefighter leaving the Navy and uh, the city of San Diego lifeguard uh, community is a, is a component of San Diego fire rescue. Lifeguarding in California is a lot different. It's civil right. service. Um, there's 401ks. There was a pension. If you joined prior 2012, if you're a grandfather into it, um, you can make a career, the lifeguard service. So my first time on a rescue board, semi surfboard was in the lifeguard Academy. Um, and then, uh, my first, yeah. So in the lifeguard Academy, we did a paddle race, my nipples, my chest, my chin were just chafed (laughs) to hell. And, uh, that, And then I remember we did a little paddleboard rescue paddleboard training near the OB pier where we learned how to um, get unconscious victims onto the board. And then I remember when we came in, I remember my first kind of experience with Uh. the glide. Rescue boards are really big and they catch waves really easily. And then uh, I took a wave in and I took it all the way in. And then I bailed and I jumped off my board and my board like hit the beach and then Another guy in the lifeguard academy who was a very experienced paddler was like, yeah. never, never do that. Don't get your body.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and so, so you you leave the navy because you're done. You start you enter the the lifeguard academy, and so you're paddling, and doing all this stuff. And then, so is that when kind of that that because you mentioned in some you know some exchanges we've had that kind of it kind of hits you. Just uh, you had this mo- this like um, realization of like pr- propulsion, you know, on a paddleboard or a surfboard, just through your own. Energy and and mind and everything versus being on a giant ship, which is very different. That that was meaningful to you, right? So, how did you? When did you kind of? When did that hit you, where you really kind of gravitated and really wanted to be more in the ocean, like on a board or even in the water doing stuff?
1: It is. It was actually determination to get better Mm. at paddling. Um, I didn't realize that at the time. Like it was a. It's a growth mindset type of thing, a free thinking type of thing. And I realized, like you know what, you're 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 a yeah. disgrace on the paddleboard right now. And this is a this is a vital tool for rescues, and it's it really is. If if you're yeah. on a mass rescue, you know and it's critical. You could put like you know six right. people could hold on to that thing. So it was mainly determination. I looked at myself and I said, you know th- that that paddleboard race that you did in the academy was just you know your your current standing with the paddleboard, but it's not it doesn't determine what you can be with the paddleboard. So my first year, every San Diego lifeguard spends their first year on mission Bay, which isn't right. too sexy. It's not like being at the beach. Um,
0: very controlled. And em- so controlled environment, during my so workout. Within the bay.
1: Yeah. Very, very not, not too crazy. You just kind of sit there. Um, I had a great spot though. I had this place called sail bay, um, which was very low key rescues were very, very minimal. Um, it had a great, uh, you know, had a running path behind me, and uh, it was kind of in the PB Mission Mission Beach area. So I said to myself, we had a huge paddleboard there. It was a, and it was the only new paddleboard on the bay. So I said to myself, by the end of the summer, you'll be paddle straight for an hour. So they have buoys marking all over the bay. So on my break, the the relief guard would come and relieve me, and um, it was uh, it was then. That, you know, I, I kept training, I would paddle on my, on my knees for four, you know, 50 mm-hmm. strokes and I get on the prone position or the prone position, paddle, paddle for 50 strokes. And by the end of the summer, which was, it was August of 2014 before the seasonals got laid off. Um, I was able to paddle straight for an hour. It wasn't until February, 2015 is when my buddy Brandon Hill brought, you know, started teaching me how to surf. And then I bought. I found this board, this like kind of eight-foot board, we nicknamed the Torpedo. And he brought me to this place in Hennemans, which is Bird Rock area, uh, La Jolla area in California, in San Diego. And I caught this wave and I took it all the way down the line.
0: Yeah. It wasn't
1: sexy. I kind of just stood there. And then I and it popped out off the uh, face of the wave. I'm like, this is why I live here. You know, this, this is, you know, had some stuff going on in my yep. life. I was currently unemployed. Um wasn't really seeking work. I was kind of figuring some stuff out. And I'm like, hmm. this made me feel amazing. For some reason, this, this like Andy Iron said in his current in that documentary, Kissed by God, and he said something along the lines of like, you know, it's it's medication right. without medication. And uh, that's that's where the light bulb hit where I'm like, you know what, I, I wanna be a waterman. I wanna be a surfer, I wanna read this language that not too many people know how
0: to read and uh I kind of went from there. Yeah, that's cool man. And it's interesting like there's two two kind of perspectives on what you just described. One is you look at somebody paddling and if you don't know it looks like well you just lay down and then you just move your arms and you go forward or you get in your knees and it's funny how growing up as a kid doing it you take for granted how actually challenging it it really is to find your balance to develop the back muscles the shoulder muscles, the neck muscles to actually do it proficiently, you know? And so we take it for granted. I take it for granted, just having done it forever. And you're, as you're mentioning, it's like there it was a milestone. You were able to paddle for an hour. And that is, that's a big thing to, to develop that skill and ability later in life. You know, it's, that's really cool. And then second is, you know, you ride this wave and suddenly it all kind of makes sense, you know, and that's a big kind of topic and theme in general on the show. Of you know of the podcast which is you find those moments in very we all find them in similar similar scenarios but also very different you might be a free diver who dives and finds that moment the first time they go hold their breath for three minutes or you might be a long distance you know scp person who finds it after 25 miles in the middle of the ocean or it's riding a wave for 20 seconds you know and so so it hits you and then you're like all right I get it. This is all making sense now. And so then what was your kind of, how'd you go from there? Was it okay? How do I position my life so I can spend more time doing that and feeling, feeling that emotion from being in the water and surfing and everything?
1: Well, I'll tell you what, like, you know, I I was on the top of the mountain after I surfed a, you know, a 10, 11 foot mountain uh, rescue board, which is very, it's not easy, but I mean, but it's easy to like over time, once you get it, but then I, the mountain got ripped out underneath me. I took out $2,000 out of my Roth IRA and I bought my first Bark paddle board, a stock board. Nice. And um, I, I bought it from Joe Bark himself at a shape shop up in Torrance. And as you probably know, those boards are extremely sensitive and um, I couldn't even paddle on my stomach when I first yeah. got on it because it was, it was so tippy and paddling you know, on my on my knees was damn near impossible I couldn't get three or four paddles I was getting so frustrated I even emailed Joe <laughs> bark asking him if something was wrong with the board and he, he he sent me an email back he's like Stefan you just start start out on the bay and and stay calm and just keep paddling kind of a little you know very simple message but you know very simple message for anyone yeah. in life that may fall or tip and then eventually you know I, I talked to a lot of Pat we have a lot of Great paddlers in the in the ocean uh, in the lifeguard community. We have Eric Meach, who's done Catalina and I believe Molokai a bunch of times. I had another great paddler in my uh, in the lifeguard tower in Ocean Beach, California, that would bring me out there, and he taught me how to like uh, negotiate the bumps yeah. when a bump hits me on the stock. Board. And then I did the the loop race three years in a row. That's yep. run by Dan Mann. It's uh, around Coronado. Oh. And I stayed in California, and I, became, you know, I kept pursuing firefighting and and surfing. I surfed every break. Um, in the lifeguard community, you get an hour and a half break, which is meant to eat and also work out. So I would always take uh, the longboard, and I checked my ego at the door. I had no problems taking out a Costco wave storm, you know, and it, it paddles like a beast. It doesn't yeah. duck dive very well, but it catches waves, it and does. that's that's the whole point.
0: Yep, that's the yeah. whole point. <laughs> So, so as you kind of found your passion for the water surfing and paddling, um, did you leverage? Did you find yourself leveraging either any your 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 rescue swimmer knowledge, your just training in the navy? Did that kind of complement your kind of newfound interest, you know, in, in being in the ocean in those ways?
1: I would honestly say no. I mean, maybe yeah. it kind of gave me an acclamation, but. Yep. I would say it's like, it's like night and day difference, you know, that yeah. being a search and rescue swimmer and getting that next torp that was my job. Right. Um, but being in the ocean as a surfer, that's to get away from reality. That's right. kind of like your reality, you know, That it was just, just that's, you know, surfing is your escape. Right. I feel like from all your problems in the world, whereas like, you know as I'm going to be a rescue swimmer, I'm going to the ship. I'm going to challenges on the ship, problems that arise on the ship. So yeah, it wasn't duty. like that enjoyable. So it, it went it was a night and day difference. And I, I tell you, I really didn't like the ocean. I didn't like going underway like most people, but you know, then all of a sudden that transition it flipped. Yeah. And I was finding myself
0: in the ocean all the time now. Right, 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 man. Oh, that's awesome. So, so then you were also, you, I had re- listened to a podcast called The Seasonals that you were on, and, th- and that podcast is all about, and it's really cool about people who have structured their life like with, with, um, with it like the seasons in mind. So, you know, maybe you go to Colorado in the winter and you work the lift ops and you ski and then some, you know, the season ends and you move somewhere else. And you were on that talking about sort of your sort of the seasonality of your own life. And so talk about that now, because today you are in Vermont. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I'm in Vermont. Um, I kind of, there was a job opportunity that arose here. Um, one of my friends, uh, Bought a hotel with his brother, and I grew up in hospitality, so they kind of brought me on as help, um, kind of fill a front desk manager type role. Um, wasn't in the great spot when I came out here, you know, left all my kind of friends in San Diego. Um, a relationship that I thought was going to get yep. back on track didn't, um, so heartbreak played a little bit of a role, and I learned how much heartbreak can affect your life um, if you let yeah. it um, So I came out to Vermont, which eventually was good. Um, to get to get away from it all, um, I found myself on the weekends going from to Rhode Island, four and a half hours away to Narragansett or Matunik, um, because to uh, to surf or Jenna State Beach in New Hampshire. But I'm happy to say that I'm moving back to Ocean Beach, nice. California, um, in May. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping that this job comes through. It's a remote job and it has a good work life balance and, uh, hopefully I'm really hoping it's coming through, but regardless, I'm moving back. It's time for me, uh, to kind of get away from from Vermont. So that, that's kind of that out of all my friends. I think I've, I've had the most like up and down path of trying to get a job and living places. I lived in Jackson hole for a winter. Now I live in Vermont, you know, of course, Virginia Beach and Coronado, that's kind of by default, but,
0: uh, yeah, yeah I've kind of, I've of kind there.
1: of gone my own way and I've been happy. So that's,
0: yeah, um, that's, that's pretty key. Yeah. That's really all that matters, you know? So then what did you, did you, did you schlep your, your bark paddleboard around with you or did you, you stash it and store it or is that waiting for you back in Ocean Beach?
1: My paddleboard is actually in my, the house that I'm a co-owner with in Imperial Beach is a two car cool. garage, a lot cool. of my stuff, but My foamy is out here with me, the single fin foamy, and my seven zero Dan Man board. Yep. So I have that um, going for me. So yeah, um, I haven't really had the motivation to get out there this winter. I did ski a little bit this winter to get back on the sticks, even though I wasn't that motivated to. Um, But I'm looking forward to um, getting. I think I'm going to join the master swim class around uh, here in Vermont until uh, to get my arms, my my paddling arms back underneath me. Yeah.
0: i'll be ready to go nice very nice so what uh, get back to the coast california and break dust the dust the, or blow the dust off the paddleboard and just kind of get back into or really kind of establish re-establish your kind of ocean life of paddling and surfing that sounds like that's on tap for you huh yeah absolutely i'm already thinking
1: about doing the waterman's race i don't uh the waterman's race is from uh swamis to wind and sea yeah Um, I don't know if the loop race is going to go down. It was, uh, it was canceled last year. So I don't know if I'll be prepared to do that this year. It's usually Memorial day weekend, but I'll I'll aim to do waterman's. I think there's another race in August, but I'm also just looking forward in my head. I'm visualizing um, every lifeguard tower puts out a buoy about 250 yards off the main tower and, uh, it's used for workouts. So I'm, I'm, I'm already like, in my head, I'm like thinking of like run, swim runs or run paddle right. runs awesome. or a paddle run. That's
0: good stuff. So I'm man. really,
1: I, yeah. and the, the, the studio I'm getting is walking distance. So that's, it's always what I wanted. I always wanted to live in OB and, and work in California. And the job is this job I hopefully will get is remote. So I don't have to commute.
0: Nice. That's a good thing, yeah. man. Well, that's awesome, Stefan. And uh gosh, if I'm ever down there, I'll look you up. We go down there not too often. I'm in Santa Cruz, you know, eight, Nine, nine hours north of there you know on the coast but we do swing through every now and then love to get a paddle or something uh, but man good luck with that and be good to have you back in cal california and everything and then uh yeah man thanks for sharing so much you know anything you want to kind of uh wrap up with
1: um no, no not really but i mean like i said before we started recording if anyone's on the side of the tracks where you know surfing is kind of distance or not in your head uh give it a try and just know that the first year you're going to spend a lot of time on your stomach and falling over. But uh, the rewards and the lifetime benefits of that um, activity is, and sport is uh, is uh, tenfold.
0: Yeah, man. hundred percent for sure. Right on Stefan. Well, Hey man, really appreciate your time and sharing and everything and uh, good luck with everything, man. And uh, take care. Thanks so much, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. All right. Bye-bye. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. We really appreciate all the support. Uh, if you like what you heard, uh, please, you know, uh, hype us up on social media. Always appreciate, you know, spreading the word. Uh, give us a nice little rating on the uh, your podcast app and uh, just keep tuning in. If you're interested in being on the show and sharing some of your life stories, uh, hit me up, josh at thisoceanlife.tv. You can PM me on uh, Facebook or Instagram. Anyway, thanks again for being here and uh, have a great day.